Good morning from Des Moines, Iowa. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Monday, February 3rd. In today's news, Susan Collins finds herself lonely in the middle as a vote on impeachment looms. China lashes out at the American response to the coronavirus as the pandemic becomes politicized. And Patrick Mahomes shows he's the best player in the NFL right now. But first, the big idea. On the last day of campaigning here before tonight's precinct caucuses, crowds overflowed school gymnasiums and campaign offices around the state as the candidates kept a brisk pace to make their final appeals. But the day was mostly marked by upheaval and signs of discomfort among top party officials over whether Iowa's vote will push the presidential race too far to the left. On Sunday, even as Joe Biden's campaign aides worked to downplay expectations and allies sought to cast doubt on Bernie Sanders' viability, an NBC reporter overheard one of the former vice president's top surrogates, John F. Kerry, in the hotel lobby, speculating over the idea that he would jump into the race. The 2004 nominee and ex-secretary of state categorically denied that he would run in 2020, using a profanity that starts with the first letter of his middle name. But he did not directly deny the NBC report that he had been speculating about it on the phone. NBC said that he cited a motivating factor as, quote, the possibility of Bernie Sanders taking down the Democratic Party, down whole. It was in some ways a fitting coda to an unusual campaign in which Democrats, after a year on the trail, continue to grapple with which of their many options offers the best chance of defeating President Trump. Sanders is widely perceived by operatives in various campaigns as the slight favorite going into tonight's caucus, although a CBS poll published yesterday showed that he and Biden are tied at 25 percent apiece with Buttigieg, Pete Buttigieg at 21 percent, Elizabeth Warren at 16 percent and Amy Klobuchar at 5 percent. I attended rallies for all five of those finalists over the weekend. Each of them offered conflicting views of how they would position the party to best take on Trump. Biden and Buttigieg put forward a more centrist view and said they could work with Republicans. Sanders vowed to reshape the party in his revolutionary image. And Warren presented herself as a unity candidate, straddling the middle of those two camps, a fighter who can also get things done. Uncertainty and fear continue to undergird the campaign's final hours. Some campaign aides worry that their candidate will be dealt a suffocating blow tonight. And many voters and even some candidates say they're fearful about the party's divisions at the very moment they hoped Democrats would be energized and starting to coalesce. As Klobuchar put it at a middle school late Saturday night, quote, we better not screw this up. With the last day of campaigning that was unseasonably warm and sunny, all the snow on the ground is melting, making it quite muddy. Candidates spread out to mobilize their core supporters and convert as many of the many undecided voters as they could. Buttigieg was greeted by a crowd of more than 2,000 at Lincoln High School in Des Moines, home of the rail splitters. Biden, who can sometimes struggle to fill a room, saw standing room only audiences with 1,100 people at an event in a middle school in Des Moines. Warren's staff had planned for only 350 people to see her at Simpson College in Indianola, but more than three times that showed up. In fact, the space was so tight that her very top campaign advisors were temporarily barred by the fire marshal from entering. Warren urged voters in her pitch not to be afraid to vote for her and her agenda. Fighting back, she said, is an act of patriotism. Sanders stopped at campaign offices in three cities, giving abbreviated stump speeches to supporters preparing to canvas for him. It's a change of pace from the large rallies he's held in recent weeks, including a concert on Saturday night that drew an estimated 3,000 people. He said the time has ended for simply expressing concern about income inequality, health care, and the environment. 
Now, he says, is the time to end the complaining and take action. And that action can start in the caucuses. Sanders' efforts to pressure Democrats to coalesce behind him have been made more complicated, though, after so many of his prominent supporters have aggressively attacked other Democrats in recent days. For example, at that rally in Cedar Rapids on Saturday night, liberal filmmaker Michael Moore, who's been introducing Sanders, took sharp aim at the Democratic National Committee and its leader, Tom Perez, accusing them of conspiring against Sanders and trying to boost former New York Mayor Mike Bloomberg by changing the qualifications for future debates so you don't have to raise money from small-dollar donors anymore. DNC spokeswoman Zochi Hinojosa says Moore's assertion is a, quote, totally false conspiracy theory. Buttigieg began yesterday on a stage where he was introduced by Iowa City Mayor Bruce Teague. Teague had previously backed Cory Booker before the New Jersey Democrat dropped out of the race. He made a pointed reference to criticism of Buttigieg's difficulty attracting non-white voters. Teague joked to the crowd, I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm black. Buttigieg has grown more animated and more emotive of late, and his crowds, generally politely supportive, have become more raucous. His campaign touted the 27 counties that voted for Barack Obama and Trump as evidence of his effort to reach more than just true blue Democrats. Buttigieg suggested yesterday that a massive American majority agrees with him on things like gun background checks and dealing with climate change. And he suggested he's the candidate best equipped to reach those people who switched from Obama to Trump. Two voters at his rally in Coralville told him that they're Republicans voting for a Democrat for the first time. Biden began his day courting voters in Dubuque, which is in eastern Iowa on the Mississippi River, attempting to rally a crowd at a Catholic university by saying he's the candidate not only with the most widespread appeal, but the one with the experience to unite a divided nation. But that bipartisan appeal was tested a few hours later when Joni Ernst, the Republican senator from Iowa, raised the prospect that Republicans will attempt to impeach Biden if he's elected and the GOP wins control of the House over the work that his son did in Ukraine. During a breakfast with reporters yesterday, Biden's top strategists sought to play down the results in Iowa, arguing that the impact of a loss for him would be limited and suggesting that voters are going to consider the results of all four early states, not just Iowa and New Hampshire. It's a bad sign when you're doing that kind of spend the day before the caucuses. Simone Sanders, a senior Biden advisor, said that they never said they were going to run away with this, adding, quote, we ain't shocked. She and other Biden advisors also attempted a more difficult task. They're trying to cast the former vice president, who has led in most national polls throughout the race, as the underdog. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, a Senate Republican acknowledged on the Sunday shows that Trump was wrong to pressure Ukraine for his own political benefit, even as he and others defended their decision to prohibit new evidence in his impeachment trial while pressing ahead with the president's all but certain acquittal in a vote scheduled for Wednesday. Senator Lamar Alexander, the retiring Republican from Tennessee, said on Meet the Press that what Trump did was, quote, wrong and inappropriate and improper, and it crossed the line. But then he said voters should decide in November whether to remove Trump from office. Meanwhile, the Trump administration acknowledged over the weekend the existence of two dozen emails that could shed light on the president's thinking about withholding the military aid as Ukraine tried to fend off an ongoing invasion from Russia. Senator Susan Collins was the first of two Republicans to break with the president on any aspect of the trial by voting for witnesses last Friday, and she's getting attacked for it from her right back home in Maine. Locked in a tight re-election campaign, the choice has elicited a wintry mix of cold shoulders and icy glares. Republicans have quietly counseled that Collins could go no further without inciting a rebellion from the party's Trump-loving base, perhaps even a primary challenge. 
Democrats, meanwhile, heaped scorn on the senator for making gestures towards standing up to the president, but not doing so when it counts. Everyone expects that she will likely vote to acquit. Siding with Democrats on whether the president should be removed would be unforgivable among many of Maine's rank-and-file Republicans, who are increasingly part of the Trump wing of the party, not the Collins wing. The base is already restless. In recent weeks, Collins' offices have been flooded with angry voicemails. Many of them are threatening and hate-filled. Collins has been sharing some of the nastiest ones. Meanwhile, RNC chair Rana Romney-McDaniel refused to defend her uncle, Mitt Romney, after he voted in favor of witnesses. On CBS yesterday, McDaniel was asked about the Utah senator not being invited to the Conservative Political Action Conference next month as payback for his efforts to hear from former National Security Advisor John Bolton about his firsthand knowledge of the president's efforts to allegedly coerce Ukraine. She responded that Republicans are justifiably upset with her Uncle Mitt. They think if you're not supporting him, she means the president, you're helping a Democrat get elected, she said. McDaniel added that this is a very common belief among the grassroots of the party. Number two, coronavirus infections are predicted to grow exponentially as the outbreak becomes increasingly politicized. China's National Health Commission reported a few hours ago that there are now 17,205 confirmed cases of coronavirus infection on the mainland. The WHO reported 146 confirmed cases in 23 countries outside China. The CDC confirms an additional case in California involving a patient who had recently returned to the United States from Wuhan. That brings the U.S. case number to nine with no deaths so far, thankfully. One nation after another is closing its borders to most Chinese travelers as the death toll from the novel coronavirus continues to rise with no sign that it can be contained before it becomes a full-blown planetary health crisis. But... China's increasing isolation threatens to turn this new epidemic into a geopolitical conflict, intensifying the pre-existing tensions between China and the United States and having potentially significant impacts on the global economy. Last night, the U.S. officially put into effect stringent new travel restrictions on all people coming in from China. But the official edict of the Trump administration, which was announced on Friday, led to confusion about where exactly travelers from China deemed in need of quarantining would be screened and housed and where or when they'd be arriving. At least a dozen countries have also put travel restrictions on people coming from China. The lists include some of the neighboring countries that have closed their borders, including North Korea. Such travel restrictions are contrary to public health recommendations and have riled Chinese government officials. The foreign ministry's combative spokeswoman singled out the United States and specifically yesterday attacked Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross for saying that the coronavirus could help bring jobs to the United States as companies move operations away from China. The virus is threatening supply chains, though, that depend on Chinese-made parts and materials. Some of the U.S.'s best-known manufacturers, like General Electric, Caterpillar, and the big three automakers, along with many smaller American businesses, depend on what's made in Chinese factories. Now they're confronting life without those items. Analysts on Wall Street say the concern shouldn't be the zombie apocalypse with people dying in the streets. The concern should be that a huge chunk of the global economy gets put out of commission as people wait this out. Stock markets in China reopened this morning after a 10-day break for the Lunar New Year to their sharpest falls in more than four years. China's main share index plunged about 10% on the open. Number three, the Kansas City Chiefs claimed their first Super Bowl title in 50 years last night after defeating the San Francisco 49ers. Quarterback Patrick Mahomes delivered a pair of touchdown passes as part of a 21-point outburst as the Chiefs came back to beat the San Francisco 49ers 31-20 with a stunning late turnaround in Super Bowl 54 on what was a picture-perfect night in Miami and a great halftime show as well. 
Mahomes was named the game's MVP and became a Super Bowl winner in his third NFL season. He had a first-half rushing touchdown and ended up completing 26 of 42 passes for 286 yards. Chiefs coach Andy Reid adds a Super Bowl victory to his distinguished career that has lacked one. On the other side, Kyle Shanahan's team lost a double-digit Super Bowl lead again. The 49ers led by 10 points entering the fourth quarter, with nearly all the momentum and a championship just 15 minutes away. Shanahan's only 40 years old, but he has his own experience with this kind of heartache. He was the offensive coordinator for the Atlanta Falcons three years ago when they lost a 28-3 second-half lead against Tom Brady and the New England Patriots. In those two Super Bowls, Shanahan's offenses have now been outscored 46 to nothing in the fourth quarter in overtime. A wild stat. And that's The Daily 202 for Monday, February 3rd. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. If you want to get more news about the impeachment process, you can subscribe to a podcast feed from The Washington Post with all our updates in one place, including the latest from The Daily 202's big idea, Can He Do That?, and post reports. Find it at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. 